I will ask us to turn to the letter of 1 John, chapter 4. I have been going to this letter every time I've been preaching in the morning. And we thank the Lord. He has given us another opportunity to consider his truths in this letter. So John, 1 John, chapter 4. We're going to consider verses 15 to 18, but I will read from verses 1 all the way to 18. Please hear the reading of God's word. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him, he in us, because he has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Let us turn to the Lord and ask him for help before we hear his word. 
Oh Lord, we come to you again. We ask you that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand the truths in your word. Oh Lord, we cannot know your word. We cannot gain the blessings from your word. We cannot be directed to you by your word if you do not help us, if you do not come to our aid this morning. And so, Lord, we ask you that you would help us. Help us, O Lord, that as we hear your word, as we know you, O Heavenly Father, that we would be submitted to you, that we would desire to do your will, that we would die to our sins, that we would love the brethren as you have commanded in your word. O Lord, help us. Help me, O Lord, to teach your word faithfully and clearly. Strengthen me. O Lord, help me that I will be simple, that I would be clear, so that even the children who are gathered with us this morning would be able to hear your word. And we ask you, Lord, that you would save the lost. We pray, Lord, that you would warn the careless this morning. And we ask you that you would strengthen the weak as your word goes forth. So we thank you, Lord, for all this, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. During the 80s, when there was, we had what was called the Cold War. The Cold War was a time when then Russia or the Soviet Union was anti the U.S. and the U.S. was anti-Russia and anti the Soviet Union. And one of the biggest weapons that was being used at that time is not even nuclear weapons and these big tanks and all that. The biggest and one of the most powerful weapons that was being used was misinformation or giving information that had air in it. For example, in 1982, it is said that because the Russians wanted to develop their pipelines to transport oil and they needed technology from the Americans, the Americans fed them covertly with information about how to make those pipelines. But then they put in that information, those blueprints, they put in there errors and malfunctions that could not be seen. And once the Russians received this information, you know what they did? They thought, wow, we have found technology to now build our pipelines. And they did that, and they built huge pipelines. But then after a few years, they started to notice that their pipelines were breaking down. Pumping stations were exploding. Machines were breaking down. And they were losing billions of dollars because of that. Years later, they came to realize that the information they had received had been corrupted, had been distorted. Errors had been put by the Americans 
into those blueprints so that they may damage their own facility. And we can say that is in the same way the devil, the devil's biggest weapon against the church is error, misinformation, distortion of the truth. That is the biggest weapon of the devil. He will take the truth and insert some errors. He will take the truth and insert some small malfunction here and there. And guess what? When you take that so-called truth and you build your Christian life, you start realizing that there are holes in your Christian life. You start realizing that there is sin coming in here and sin coming in there. And you wonder what is happening. This is the very weapon the devil had used in the church in Asia Minor that John was writing to. And that's why in chapter 4, in the beginning of chapter 4, he tells them, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test every spirit to see whether they are from God. The devil is doing that even today. The devil is playing the same, same old card. Give them the truth, but just sprinkle in a little bit of falsehood. And one of the falsehood that the devil was bringing into the truth of God's word is distorting the love of God. And even today we see the devil doing the same, where people think, whenever we think about the love of God, we think that God is a heavenly Father Christmas, isn't it? Who just dishes away what? Presents and gifts and, oh, you want this, I'll give you. You want that. The other thing that we see the devil distort about the love of God today, and it's there in the church, it's present, it's alive, and it could even be amongst us, is that the love of God is this love that just accepts everyone in spite of their sins, in spite of them rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, you can still be a Buddhist, you can still be a Muslim, but God still saves you and God still loves you. Isn't that what we see many people believe and even preach today, sadly? That you can live as you want, that you can reject the truths of the Bible, and that God will still love you. That God is so loving. You know, some people say this, God is so loving. He cannot send anyone to hell. Those distortions are from the evil one. And they are meant to make us to have a Christian faith and a Christian life that is broken and that ultimately malfunctions. And that is why John then writes to the church in Asia Minor, and even to us in Donholm this morning, to give us the true and right information about the nature of God's love. Because 
it has been so distorted. Ask people about the love of God. And they think of this fluffy kind of love. It is this easy kind of love. But John will show us that what the devil and what the false teachers and what the antichrists seek to say about the love of God is wrong. And he will do us by showing us the true love of God. How does God love? How do we see the love of God in our lives as believers? How does God dispense his love to a fallen sinner? It is important that John does this because not just that the church has many false teachers, but if we do not understand the love of God, we will not understand how we ought to love one another. Because God's love is the, I would say it is a model love, it is a prototype love. And if we get the love of God wrong, our love amongst us as believers will malfunction. Our love amongst us as believers will collapse. We might think and we might say that we love one another. But we might actually be harming one another. If we do not, first of all, learn, see, and understand the love of God. And so this morning, I would like us to look at the nature of God's love. And look at what John tells us about the love of God as he deals with the false teachings that are around even today. And the first thing that I want us to see that John points out about the nature of God's love is that God's love is based on the truth of the gospel. And we see this in verses 15 and 16. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Unlike what many people think, love, biblical love or the love of God is not a love that is outside what God has revealed in his word. Love, true love, is not devoid of knowledge. True love is not devoid of truth. Actually, true love is a love that is guided by knowledge. It is a love that insists on the truth. True love is led and guided by the truths of God's word, which are unchangeable, which are firm, which are eternal. We see that in the world, the worldly love is controlled by feelings, isn't it? Not by truth. The love in the world is simply, I feel like loving you. 
I have had this feeling. I, I have goosebumps. Therefore, I love you. The love of the world is led and guided by what we see. You see that someone is attractive and that's it. You say you love them. When that person stops being attractive, you stop loving them. That is a world's love. But the love that comes from God, the love of God, is guided, is brought out to us through the truths of the gospel. And this is what John says. Look at how he connects the two. Confession of Jesus Christ in verse 15 and knowing the love of God in verse 16. Now we must know that the verse separations are not there. John did not have those verse 15 and verse 16. That is actually one statement that John was making. He ties whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. They abide in God. And look at what he says then in verse 16. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Those two things. Confession of the truth. Knowledge of the truth. Abiding in the truth. And God's love are tightly tied together and we cannot separate them. You cannot say that you love God and, or that God's love is upon someone and that person is outside of Christ. That is the implication of this passage. We see in the Bible that God hates sinners, isn't it? The Bible doesn't tell us that God loves sinners. He hates sinners. God doesn't simply hate the sin, because that's another way people put it. God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. No. He hates the sinner who commits the sin. He hates the sinner who rejects, who does not confess the truth of who Christ is. But then, for those who confess, for those who believe, for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of God, then they know the love of God. It is important that we know this. Because so much, again, is being said out there of how you just go to someone, especially in our evangelism today, today's evangelism, where you just simply jump upon someone and you tell them, God loves you. God has a perfect plan for you. Is that really what the Bible tells us about sinners? Now, this might be an, an unpopular thing to say. And people have said that, oh, no, you, you cannot insist so hardly, hard on the truths of the Bible in that way. 
you will push away sinners if you tell them that God hates them. But what better thing than to tell someone the truth? I would rather tell you the truth. Imagine if you went to a doctor and you had a big, serious problem in your body. Let's say, for example, you have, um, you have a problem in your leg and one of your nerves is dying and that needs to be corrected or there is a blockage of one of the main veins in your leg. And you might lose that leg if you don't get operated. And then imagine if I am your doctor and I come to you and I tell you, you know what? Things are going to be so well for you. You just go out there and life is going to be well. You don't need any change. Just stay as you are. Am I loving you? Not. The loving thing to do is to show people the truths of the Bible. And is to show them that here is what God is saying. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Whoever confesses, those who confess are the ones who know and who have come to believe and to attain and to experience the love of God. To confess isn't simply a statement from our lips. John is not simply saying to confess is you saying, okay, Jesus is the son of God and being addressed at that, no. To confess is far deeper. To confess is the work of the Holy Spirit where one owns and is owned by the person of Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the Bible. As he is revealed in the scriptures, and that's why, look at verse 16. The word know and believe are tied together. Why? The love of God is revealed in the written text. We know it. We see it. As we look at what is revealed in the Bible. What has God done for us as sinners? He sent his only son to die on the cross for sinners. So this is what it means to confess. It's not just lip service. It is to give ourselves to Christ. To turn away from our sins. To put our hope in him. And therefore we see that confession, knowledge, and believing are laid out as necessary components of abiding in God's love. So we need to know this, dear brethren. We need to know this wonderful reality. It is a scary reality to others. It is a wonderful reality to others. It is a scary reality for those who assume that simply because God made you, that therefore God's love is upon you. No. Does it mean, simply mean because God made you, his love is upon you? 
Oh no. God's love is set and it's upon those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what we see in Ephesians chapter 5. What are we told? In Ephesians 5, let me just read it for us so that we comprehend again those who love, or rather those who have experienced the love of God in Christ through the gospel of Christ. Ephesians 5 and verse 25. This is what it says. Husbands, love your wives. And here is an example given. As Christ loved who? Everybody. As Christ loved the church. Look at that. The love of Christ is limited. The same way a love, the love that a husband has for the wife is limited, isn't it? You expect that a husband will love his wife only. Of all the women in the world, he loves this one person. He has a special relationship with this one person. And that's the same way that the love of God is revealed to those and is given to those and experienced by those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who believe the gospel. Those who know the gospel of Christ. And not just know it in their heads, they know it in their hearts. The Holy Spirit has worked in their hearts. They are part of the church of God. God's love is set upon them. Christ said that, I love my sheep and I lay down my life for my sheep. Not the sheep and the goat, my sheep, those who are mine. So God's love is specific. It is focused. It is pointed. It is directed towards those who are partakers of the realities and the truths of the gospel. Now, this has very serious implications for us. As we preach the gospel, we need to show the world that they are under the judgment of God. Remove this wrong idea that we can go to a sinner and tell them that God loves them and has a good plan for them. What plans does God have for sinners? At the end of the day, it is eternal destruction in hell. That's not a good plan, isn't it? Not such a good plan. And we need to tell them that. It's a terrible thing. But we need to tell them that they can experience the love of God by turning away from their sins and believing in Christ. It has an implication for those who are seated here who do not know Christ. You think maybe because you are a good person, you come to church, possibly even the pastors here know you, and you say, well, 
God's love is upon me. I mean, I am a good person. I mean, I try to live well. I mean, I read the Bible once in a while. I come to church. Surely God loves me. No. If you do not confess this Christ, if you do not turn away from your sins, if you do not accept the message of the gospel, because that is the only way in which we will attain the love of God. Repent of your sins and turn to God through Christ. Believe in him. Run to him and he will save you. So that's the first reality that John shows about the love of God. It is specific. It is narrow. It is pointed towards those who have the truth of the gospel. But then secondly, the other thing that John will show is that God's love makes those whom he saves to abide in him. So first of all, God's love, or rather we come to experience and know God's love through the gospel. When we hear the gospel, when we believe the gospel, when we abide in the truths of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have God's love. We experience God's love. But then secondly, do we receive God's love so that God's love so that we may it may just end there? No. God's love has an effect on those whom it comes upon. God's love is like a powerful force that changes us, that causes us to be different. God's love doesn't leave us the way it found us. The love of God, as we see in verses 16, part B, and this is what John says, that God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. The love of God for the saints is not only a love that gives the saints salvation or love, but it is a love that draws and that keeps them to him. We see that in the gospel that God gave his son, his only begotten son, as the redeemer of the elect. But he redeems the elect so that they may be his and they may abide in him. Now, that's a very important statement. God redeemed us so that we may be his and so that we may abide in him. To abide in God is the reason for our salvation. We were not saved so that we may live as we want. I like giving this example of taking us back to the book of Exodus, and I will keep pointing back to the book of Exodus. Why did God save the Israelites from Egypt? 
Did he save them so that they, they come from slavery? And then he tells them, now I have loved you so much. You are under slavery, you are under bondage. Now just go and live the way you want. Is that how God saves the people of Israel? We actually see that once God saves them, he takes them to Mount Sinai and there he gives them what? His laws. I am redeeming you so that you may belong to me. Salvation is an exchange of masters, as we have seen in, uh, as our brother Pasamurugi has been taking us through the book of Romans. Salvation doesn't mean that we no longer have a master. Because, again, that's another mis misconception that the devil brings. You think that you have been saved so that now you no longer have a master. You have been saved from the master called sin. So that now you are under the master called God, Christ. You are either a slave of sin or you are a slave of God. There is no middle ground. You are in one camp. This camp where you are a slave of sin, this camp where you are a slave of God. So God has saved us so that we may abide in him. John uses that word over and over, abide, abide, abide in his letter. Why does he use that word abide? Because he wants us to understand over and over again, you have been saved to belong to God, to stay in God, to stick to God. You, have been, you haven't been saved so that you may live your life. Now you have an insurance policy against hell. Do what you want to do. No. When we are saved from sin, we come into the knowledge of God. We submit to God. We are now bound to the words of the scriptures. We are guided by the revealed will of God for us. And we see this, that God gave us his love so that we may live in him, so that we may live for him, and we may live by him. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. This is what Paul tells the church in Corinth, so that we may understand these points. That God's love makes us or causes us to abide in him. It has a serious and a great effect. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Look at what Paul says about the love of Christ. For the love of Christ controls us. Look at that. The love of Christ does what? Controls. It does not simply influence us. It doesn't simply uh, guide us in a 
lightweight. It controls. The word there uses very strong. It has a picture of, imagine someone with a remote control. The TV doesn't get to choose the station it wants to, to reflect, isn't it, or to show. You press the control and it immediately, can you imagine if you ever press your remote control and it doesn't change or it changes to something else? What do we say? We say that there is something broken with the, either the control or the TV, isn't it? And you will eventually, if, it, if that problem persists, you will throw it away, isn't it? That is the same picture we have that we are made to be controlled by this love of Christ. To abide. To be guided. To live in. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all. And listen to this. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for he whom for their sake died and was raised. Did you hear that? That Christ died for us as a church, so that we might no longer live for ourselves. God's love makes us to abide in him. He saved us so that we may live for him, not to live for ourselves. And this has a serious implication for us as believers because we need to ask ourselves as we consider this passage, am I controlled by God? Am I led by God? If deep, deep, down, I look at the desires of my heart. If you inspect the desires of your heart, if you inspect those things that define your life, those things that you want for your life, are they controlled by God or are they controlled by me? What I want, what I need, what I feel, Are you abiding in God? Are you controlled by his love? Are you a slave of God? Do you conform to his will? Are you being renewed as you read his word? Are you being made to die to your sin and to love righteousness? Or are you the same? Are you saying that, oh, you know what, I've experienced God's love, but you're still living the way you used to live. You still have the desires that are the same desires you had. Are you still controlled by your feelings? Or are you controlled by the word of God? Another implication is that to abide in God is the means by which we remain 
and grow in the faith. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. As we love God, as we love the brethren, as we continue to grow to be more and more submissive to him, then we grow and we remain in the faith. Our lives as believers and our fruitfulness are dependent on abiding in God. That's what we read uh, from John 15 this morning, isn't it? Where Christ says, I am the vine. And he says, abide in me. Remain in me. And as you remain in me, as you abide in me, as you obey me, as you are submitted to me, as you experience this wonderful love, you will produce fruit. We are told that as branches can only grow and be fruitful when they are connected to the vine, so we can only grow and be useful as we remain in God. God's love makes us, it causes us to abide in him. The wonderful thing is that this is the work of God himself because we can't do it by our own strength. Because we wake up in the morning and we desire and you're listening to this someone and you say, I need to love God more. And then an evil thought comes to your mind and an evil attitude comes into your heart and you wonder what is happening. But oh, how wonderful it is that it is God himself who has set his love on us in Christ. And that through this love that he has set on us in Christ, he will cause us to abide in him. God's love for his people is the glue that will ensure that we are in him. That we continue to have salvation and life. A good demonstration of this is when God made a covenant with Abraham. God told Abraham, go and take animals, this animal, that animal, that animal, and do what? Cut them in half. You remember in Genesis? He told them to cut those animals in half and to spread them, put them against one another, cut them in half, spread them against one another. And then as Abraham was sleeping, he saw a, there was this darkness, and then a pot of fire passed in between the animals, the animals that had been cut in two. You know what that symbolized? It symbolized the covenant love that God had for Abraham. In those days when you wanted to make a, a contract, if you wanted to uh, do a contract or a covenant with someone, what you would do is that you would cut the animals into half. And then both of you would walk between those uh, animals that have been cut in half 
and you are saying, if I don't do my part of the contract, may, my, may I be like that animal? May I be sown in half? That's how serious contracts were. I, th I think maybe we should go back to that. Eh? Uh, yeah. Um, seriously, I think maybe in, 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 this would be bizarre, but when we say I do, maybe we should do that. Eh? When you say I do walk in between two animals that have, have been cut in half. If I fail, may I be cut in half. Read the book of Ezekiel. That's what God was saying. You have broken those covenants and those contracts where you walked in between animals. But the interesting thing with Abraham is that it is not Abraham who walks in between those animals. It is God himself. God was telling Abraham, if I fail, may I be cut into half? Is it possible to cut God into half? Therefore, God was saying, my love for you will never fail. I will ensure that you abide in me. And that's what God was saying on the cross when Christ hung that wonderful sacrifice that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was separated from the Father. He was separated, just as those animals were separated. Christ was separated from the Father. He felt that. My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? That is a proof of how much God loves his people and how much he will ensure that we abide in him. Because for us, it's so hard to abide in God. We, we are weak. We have a love that ebbs and flows. It's up one day, it's down the next day. But all oh, the love of God that is constant. He will keep us in him. That is a wonderful reality of the gospel. But then thirdly, having seen those two points, that first of all, the love of God is based on the truths of the gospel. It cannot be gained outside the gospel. And that the love of God causes us to abide in him. To live for him. And he has proved this by enabling us in Christ and by the power of his Holy Spirit to abide in his word. He has loved us with a wonderful love in Christ. Thirdly, we see that God's love takes away the fear of judgment. And we see this in verses 17 to 18. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Verse 18. This, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So John shows that God's love for the church is a wonderful, immense love that has been revealed to us through the gospel of Christ Jesus. But then he will show that this love has a wonderful benefit that it takes away the greatest fear of all humanity. 
the fear of judgment. We know that all humanity is under the fear of judgment. All humanity is under the fear of death. Isn't that true? That is the greatest thing that all humanity fears. Death. Even those people who say, I do not fear death, deep, deep down in their hearts, they fear it. And we fear death because we know that deep down, we are going into another reality. And we are going to meet our creator. And we will be naked before him. That is where that fear of death comes from. It is in all humanity. Everyone born of Adam has that fear of death. What will happen when I breathe my last? What will, where, where will I go? What is this feeling when my heart stops? What is this feeling when I can't breathe anymore? But John says and shows us that there is a wonderful and blessed reality that we gain from God's love. God's love takes away that fear of death, that fear of judgment. God's love for the church in Christ gives us peace. Peace that we have escaped judgment. We have escaped judgment because Christ bore our sins on the cross. Because Christ was the perfect punishment, bore the punishment for our sins on that cross. As the hymn writer says, therefore there is no more wrath for me to drink or to absorb. Christ has taken it all. This is the wonderful thing that John shows the church. That you as believers are a blessed group of people. You are blessed because God has removed this huge fear from your shoulders, from off your shoulders. All of humanity is afraid. All of humanity keeps asking themselves, what will happen if I stop breathing? What will happen if God should return today? We are learning uh, in the Sunday school, the adult Sunday school class on eschatology. And we all are looking forward. I hope that those lessons are helping us to have our test buds for the return of Christ increase. I hope they are increasing. But if Christ returns today, some of us here are in fear or would be in great fear when he appears because of their sins. But oh, for the believers, the wonderful love of God has taken away the fear of judgment. John shows here that those who have known Christ, those who know Christ, those who have believed and received the truths as, of Christ as revealed in the scriptures, those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, have this peace that the world cannot give. 
the world can give you peace, but a peace that only lasts for a while. But God in Christ has given us a peace that lasts into eternity. Knowing that for eternity, we are at peace with our Creator. Knowing that for eternity, we will live with our Creator. But John also shows that for those who have not been perfected in love, or those who have not enjoyed and partaken of this love of God revealed in the gospel, what remains? Fear of judgment. This is what he says. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. There are those who are seated here this afternoon who've not experienced this love of God. There are those listening to me via the live stream who are still in their sins, still trying to gain salvation through their own works by being perfect in their own way. You have not experienced the love of God. And that's why you're still having fear in your heart. Repent and come to Christ. You will have no peace. You will continue to fear death. You will continue to fear judgment unless you hide yourself in this wonderful love of God that is revealed in Christ. But for the believers, for those who may be may be lacking assurance, for those who may be shaken by their own sins this morning, because I know there are some who, who are saying, yes, pastor, I'm hearing you, but sin, I've just fallen into sin, I, I'm struggling with this and that. This message should give you peace that God in Christ has removed any reason for you to fear punishment. Yes, your sin is heinous. Yes, your sin is attained to, it's tainting to the glory of God. It is painful in your own life, yes. Deal with that sin, kill that sin. But remember, the love of God for us in Christ has removed all fear. Be at peace. Hope. Continue hoping and abiding in Christ. And let the peace of God reign in your heart. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come before you. We thank you for your word. You have revealed to us this wonderful truth of the love that you have shown to us through the gospel that in Christ we have received not only have we been rescued from the power of sin but now we are in the under the power of the almighty God to live lives that are righteous we pray O oh Lord that you would help us to abide in you to live for you, to no longer live for ourselves. 
We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us, that we will also be at peace in this current world where we are still troubled by our own sins, by our own weaknesses. O oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to look to the cross of Christ where your love has been demonstrated to us. And that at the feet of the cross, we would always find peace and assurance. And, O oh Lord, we pray for those who do not know Christ, those who are still in their sins. We pray that they would, even this afternoon, know the wonderful love of God by turning away from their sins, by looking to Christ, by hiding themselves in him. And we ask you, O oh Lord, that out of this you would cause many, many people to know and experience your wonderful love. So be with us, O oh Lord, for we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.